Hello and welcome to the 200th episode of the This Can't Be That Hard podcast. <laughs> you guys, I can't even believe it. I cannot believe that I am now 200 episodes deep. This has been an amazing journey over the last three years. And in fact, this is falling almost exactly on the third anniversary of my very first podcast episode dropping back in February of 2020. So there's that milestone. And then there's the other milestone that is happening right around now. Of course, I'm not sure exactly what day it's going to happen, but um, we're just about to cross a quarter million downloads on the podcast. So I, I can't even begin to tell you how much that blows my mind, how grateful I feel that you guys have been willing to kind of come along with me on this journey. Every time that I go back and listen to any of my earlier episodes, uh, especially back at the beginning, you know, there's a little bit of cringing <laughs> um, in terms of how much I've learned about not just what I'm sharing, but how I share it. I mean, all the way down to the audio quality. I got a funny email the other day from a listener who praised the podcast up one side and down the other, and then basically begged me to re-record the intro music um, or the voiceover on the intro music. She was like, everything else, the audio is so good, and then there's this one part that's super bad. So uh, if you're listening right now and you feel the same way, rest assured that is on the agenda to take care of at some point in the near future. But yeah, it's been it has been an amazing journey, and I wanted to celebrate 200 episodes with some kind of a, you know, a different episode. We had a fun episode back in number 50. I was I had a surprise party for my my 100th episode and here we are at 200 and I was trying to think up what we could do that was a little bit outside the norm. Um, and as you know, if you have listened for any period of time, I typically come onto the show with a pretty specific agenda, whether I have a guest that I'm interviewing, or whether I'm recording a solo show, I have some sort of goal for you, the listener, to take away. You know, I want you to have some sort of actionable, practical thing that you can apply to your business or give some thought to or, you know, just consider when it comes to your photography. So this time for this one episode, I thought I would do something a little bit different and just turn the microphone around and ask all of you what questions you have for me on, you know, any reasonable topic that you want to hear about. I generally don't talk a lot about myself other than my business, you know, my business experience and and lessons. I feel like for the most part, you probably don't too much care about me and, you know, my life story. That's not what we're here for. But we did get some questions in that regard, and then I got some questions about my own photography business, and the most questions that I got were actually about my education business. So that's kind of fun because I've never really talked about how I got from photography into education, and today we're going to talk a fair amount about that. So for now, I will cue the perhaps terrible intro music, <laughs> and then when we come back, I will get to your questions. Welcome to This Can't Be That Hard. My name is Anami Tonkin, and I help photographers run profitable, sustainable businesses that they love. Each week on the podcast, I cover simple, actionable strategies and systems that photographers at every level of experience can use to earn more money in a more sustainable way. Running a photography business doesn't have to be that hard. You can do it, and I can show you how. 
So I put the call out via my email list and then on Instagram to ask for your questions for this episode a few weeks ago. You know, if you aren't on my email list and happen not to see those on Instagram, that's where I asked for them. And so you should be on my email list and you should be friends with me on Instagram. But um, but anyway, I put the call out and got a lot of responses. There was a fair amount of overlap on some topics. So I have condensed these questions into the ones that were sort of most represented and then some that my team and I thought would just be kind of fun to go into. But I then categorized them into those three topics that I talked about, my photography business, my education business, and my personal life. And we're going to go in that order. So in photography, and again, these questions are kind of all over the place, so forgive me as I kind of bounce around. But the first question um, that I wanted to take on was how to deal with client dissatisfaction. So this person wrote in asking about like thickening your skin and trying to get used to or be ready for the inevitable bumps in the road that you will encounter with clients over time. I think that as artists, that can be a particularly difficult thing for us, but that's hard for anybody, right? Nobody likes to hear that somebody isn't happy or had a bad experience. It's a great question, and I figured it was a good jumping off point. My answer to this question really is something that I think got informed back when I was first, you know, I was like 18, 19, 20 working as a uh, waiter in a restaurant. And I was working in a really high-end restaurant where people were paying a lot of money. And there was this expectation that everything from the service to the food, et cetera, et cetera, was going to be perfect. And it wasn't always perfect. And perfection isn't always an objective thing. I mean, sometimes we could say, yeah, that dish took 30 minutes to come out and it should have only taken... 15 minutes or something like that. But other times, you know, somebody had a bad date and they were ready to take it out on me as the waiter. The same is true here in our photography businesses and in any other business, really. And so the way that I approach that is really trying to take a stance of empathy where I listen to what that person is saying, try to kind of get to the root of what they are meaning what the where where the dissatisfaction is coming from whether it really is that they felt like their photos weren't great or is it more like an issue that they're having some body dysmorphia issues or something like that and regardless responding with kind of an empathetic version of professionalism so because of the intimate nature of the work that we do as photographers i do think that we have to deal with certain things with just a gentler touch. And I think that most of us are really well suited to do that. In fact, I think that the hardest thing for many of us is the people who are then ready to exploit our kindness or our sensitivity around that sort of thing. So you do want to keep an eye out for those people. And then in that case, you know, you just go by the book. But the other side of this really is, and it was raised in the question, is the anticipation part of the equation. So back to my restaurant example, when I was working in this fine dining establishment, we were empowered by the guy who owned this restaurant that I worked for. As waiters, he said, you know when something is going wrong. You know if the food is coming out late. You know if somebody's having a bad date. Like if you can see that at the table, try to be proactive and do what you can to kind of soften the situation. In this particular restaurant that I worked at, we actually had 
kind of this bag of tricks that we kept up our sleeve. Uh, and in, in the restaurant's case, it was actually, <laughs> it was alcohol. So there were, you know, different kind. there was like a whole part of the um, wine case that was dedicated to like, these are wines that we can give away. Sometimes it was dessert wine. Sometimes it was like, I'm going to bring you a glass of champagne because it took us too long to seat you, that sort of thing. So it's kind of giving someone, it's recognizing that something's wrong. So kind of owning what's happening uh, when appropriate. Obviously, you wouldn't want to go up and say, it seems like you're having a terrible time on your date. So I'm going to give you some champagne. (laughs) In that case, you might just make some sort of excuse for it. But in terms of like, if there was something wrong, or if something is going slowly, you can anticipate that and, um, and kind of give them some sort of small measure of, you know, compensation for that up front, which often will just sort of diffuse the whole situation because oftentimes the thing that someone is most upset about is the fact that their needs aren't being recognized. So a little bit of upfront uh, acknowledgement and ownership can go a really long way. And then on the back end, when you do have one of those clients who is ready to just like milk you for all your worth, that's where I feel like having really solid policies in place is going to be your best friend. Obviously your contract, but also just a list of, you know, this is how things work when you work with me that you can then point to at the end when they say, it took you three weeks to get me my photos. And you say, yes, but in this book that I gave you, this, you know, client prep guide that I gave you when you first booked, I talked about the fact that it often takes me four weeks. That is not necessarily going to take someone who is upset and make them not upset, but it certainly diffuses the situation and and shows them that you are a professional and you are sticking to your rules. So um, as far as thickening your skin, that is something that comes with time. I can't give you any shortcuts for that. But know that in no case are you, you know, ruining someone's life. You know, we are photographers. This is, um, we are creating art for people. Some people are going to be over the moon happy with what we do. A very few people hopefully are going to be dissatisfied, but you know, at the end of the day, you're doing your best as are we all. The next question I got was, I thought, a really interesting question about what are some of the things outside of business that I have done over time to develop my photography skills? And do I think that those actions translated to more sales and bookings? What I think is interesting about this question is that I don't talk about it very much because I'm not here to teach the art of photography. But Part of the reason that I'm not here to teach the art of photography is not that I don't feel confident as an artist and as a photographer, but because the art of photography and its link to more sales and bookings is way less strong. Uh, That is a much more sort of windy road in my experience than the link between getting your business systems in place and getting more sales and bookings. I have known plenty, far too many really, really fantastic photographers who failed and quit and went back to their day jobs because they couldn't get work, even though I would say that objectively their art was better than, for instance, mine. You know, I mean, I could look at somebody who was right here in my area who was doing really amazing work, but just wasn't getting the bookings. The difference was not, it was not a comparison on skill level. And it wasn't a comparison on price level because I've always been toward the top end of my area. 
Many of these situations came about because these people just couldn't get their business side of things together. That said, <laughs> I absolutely spent a lot of time working on my skill as a photographer before I even considered opening a business. You know, I look back at some of my early work and think, well, I probably could have waited a little bit longer. Hang on, guys. I have a quick message for you. Did you know that This Can't Be That Hard isn't the only podcast I host? Each month, my marketing director, Dana, and I team up to bring you a fresh injection of marketing ideas and inspiration on our other podcast called The Consistency Club. The podcast is free and available to any photographer looking to uplevel their marketing game, or you can take it one step further and join The Consistency Club, where you get the extended version of the podcast along with monthly email and social media templates, bonus trainings, and special access to the live marketing events we host twice a year. If you're interested in tuning in, you can search for and subscribe to The Consistency Club wherever you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to join us in the membership, you can visit go.thiscantbethathard.com slash club to sign up. But I don't regret starting when I did because I do think that you can get stuck in that like waiting too long to launch and no one is ever going to be a perfect artist. That is a craft that you're always going to hone. But back in the early days of my photography business, I really focused on shooting a lot. I always had some sort of project going where I was making lots of photos of this particular thing or trying to work a particular skill or technique into every single shoot that I did, whether it was personal or professional. Back when I was shooting weddings, I had this short list of, I'm going to make sure that at every wedding, I get a photo from above, a photo from below, a photo from near, a photo from far. I'm going to include, you know, light flare in a photo. Like I had all these different things on my literal checklist and I made sure that at every wedding I had all of those things because what I would find is that given a particular location or a particular couple, I would get into kind of a pattern or a rut. And when I went back to that checklist saying like, oh, I haven't done these three things would get me to make a wider variety of photos and it pushed my skill. So I think that over time, that checklist became second nature. And now when I'm photographing families, I, you know, I always get a wide variety because that list is just kind of going in the back of my head. What I love about that very simple formula, right, shoot a lot and give yourself little assignments that you're working on all the time, is that over time, you build quite a lot of skill because you are just out there practicing, 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 you also build a really large portfolio. Now, these are not necessarily all going to be professional photos, but we have Instagram accounts, TikTok feeds, you know, whatever you want to, whatever social media you're on that require constant feeding, right? We're always needing to feed the algorithm for social media. And there is no reason why everything that you share on that, especially in the beginning of your career, needs to be professional, right? You can share these personal projects that you're working on or something that you shot just for fun. But what I would encourage you to do if you want that to translate into more sales and bookings is to take the time to caption those things 
Or if you are into video, make, you know, stories and reels about why you are making those photos. What is it that you were looking to try and do? Why do you love it? Why do you hate it? Like, why was this difficult? If you share a lot of the story of the images that you're making, that is going to bring people in more than the image itself. We have this sense that like, well, I'm thinking a lot about this photo. Hopefully it will inspire the person who's looking at it to think something similar. Generally speaking, people aren't going to think something similar. If they are not told what to be thinking about, they're just going to kind of scroll right by. But if you start to engage people in that story, not only are they going to appreciate the work that you're creating more, but they are going to feel more connected with you and are going to be more likely to then reach out and potentially book you. So that is, uh, you know, shoot a lot, shoot with intention, and then talk about it on social media and use all of those photos to your advantage. Next question about my photography business. Um, So somebody asked me to be a prognosticator um, and said, what do you think 2023 is going to look like in the family photography industry? Do you think clients everywhere are starting to understand and respect profitable pricing? Or do you think that the incoming newer and hobbyist photographers are still around enough that people will think that photography should be a cheap investment? So (laughs) this is like a perennial question, and I don't think it's going anywhere anytime soon. But I do think that the photography industry has changed kind of even though, you know, I don't know, 15 years ago, the photography industry changed really dramatically, really quickly with the advent of digital. Ever since then, there has been this sort of slow ship kind of turn toward people understanding that a serious photographer, someone who's in business for a while is going to charge a fair amount of money. However, there because of the nature of digital, I do think that there are always going to be, you know, photographers who are out there who are running businesses where if you've ever heard me talk about somebody who's running a business where they are trying to serve people as though they're like a fancy boutique photographer, but they're charging pennies on the dollar, they're always going to be out there. They don't last very long. <laughs> But they, you know, the people who are price shopping will find them and then they'll say, well, you know, why don't you charge that little? So I wanted to point out this person asked specifically about family photography, and I want to point to weddings as an example. Years ago, weddings were not wedding photography was not something that people paid a lot of money for. They paid some money for it, but it was generally not like one of the top line items in their wedding budget. That has in many ways, changed. I could say that that has changed with wedding budgets in general, like people are spending a lot more money on weddings than they used to. But when it comes to wedding photographers, I think it's easier for them to look around and see other wedding photographers who are charging a lot. That is not to say that all wedding photographers are charging a lot of money. There are still plenty of cheap wedding photographers, and I would venture to guess that any wedding photographer who, you know, charges in those upper brackets periodically still gets those calls and emails from people saying, I can't believe how much you charge. In the family photography industry, I think we are making progress. I think like weddings of maybe 10 years ago, family photographers are starting to take their businesses more seriously. I would love to think that I have anything to do with it. (laughs) And, you know, looking at their bottom line and saying, well, I have to charge X amount of money in order to be financially solvent. I need to charge this amount of money so that I can continue in my business. So I think that that is starting to inch toward 
it being something where maybe we won't get quite as many, you know, like shock and awe reactions when we give people our very reasonable price uh, point. But I don't think that it's going to disappear in 2023 or any other time. I think that really what the best way that you can insulate yourself against that is to understand your numbers, understand your why, why you're doing what you're doing, figure out what makes you different from the people around you so that your messaging can reflect that. And then those people will end up, you know, weeding themselves out of your business. I got a question about curating a portfolio. So, um, you know, somebody who is sort of either, I guess, redoing their website or maybe creating a website for the first time. And they wanted to know about, you know, how can I get feedback on my work? Obviously, it depends on how much you want to spend or whether that's something that you want to do for free. I think that there are lots of great resources in terms of professional portfolio reviews or critiques, um, you know, at conferences. Some conferences will offer that. There are uh, services online that you can find to get a professional portfolio review. But it's also the sort of thing that you can exchange with other photographers who you network with either online or ideally in person. You know, my number one tip for that is don't get super hung up on posting a single image or even just images from a single shoot online on some sort of, you know, photography forum that you're on and asking the general population for their feedback. You have to sort of, I think it's important to pick and choose whose opinion you're asking because I don't allow people in my Facebook group to post photos and ask for feedback. That's just not what we're there for. This is a business, you know, we're, we're there to talk about business things. But I also chose not to do that right from the get-go in my business because it can turn into a complete and total free-for-all where people are giving bad advice, mean responses, you know, that's that's not what you're looking for when you're looking for a review. You want to ask someone whose work you admire, who is going to be thoughtful about what they have to say, and you're going to hopefully, ideally, give them a portfolio of work that is representative of different lighting scenarios, different, you know, situations, different subjects, all of those kinds of things, because that's the best way for you to grow. If you are feeling insecure and fishing for hopefully compliments and you put photos up in some sort of anonymous group, you are going to get some good feedback and then you're going to get a bunch of crap. So you have to be kind of careful about that. I had somebody ask if I have basically my opinions about being part of a mastermind group. Uh, they asked who's a good candidate to join a mastermind, how to decide when the time is right to join a mastermind. So I don't have a ton of personal experience with masterminds. I have been part of one mastermind and it wasn't in photography. It was actually in the education world and the business world. And part of that was just a matter of, I feel like they're a lot more common now than they were when I was kind of coming up as a photographer. I think that that might've been something that I was interested in, but I never even heard of one when I was at the time in my business when I felt like maybe that would have been the way to go. They are generally pretty expensive. And I think that it's one of those things that they can be great. And then I've heard some horror stories. So I think as far as who's a good candidate to shop for a mastermind or look for a mastermind, first of all, know yourself, know how you perform uh, from an education perspective, because I think everyone learns differently and everyone participates in things differently, just like anything else. 
the more you put into a mastermind group, the more you are likely to get out of a mastermind group. Masterminds, like let's call that something that's fewer than 20 people can be online. Most of the time these days it's online. Sometimes they're in person or sometimes there's an in-person component to them. But so it's small group learning. There's sort of a curriculum that you follow and it's usually more than like a few months. It's usually like four to six months or even more like a year. So I think that if you have a very specific goal, like between now and six months from now, I really need to fill in the blank. You know, I need to redo my pricing in my website and retool all of my client communication, or I really want to work on my craft in a particular way. Whatever it is that you want, I think it's really good to have specific goals. And then I think it's really important to find someone who's hosting a mastermind group who you like, whose business you admire, who you are very familiar with, hopefully. Um, I would not recommend making a snap decision on something as big as a mastermind with like a Facebook ad that you got or something like that. Like, I think that you should follow that person for three to six months, sort of be part of whatever online group they offer, like their free groups. Um, if they have a podcast or if they have like a YouTube channel, you know, become very familiar with who they are and what they offer and the kind of people that they attract. Because if you join their mastermind, you are going to be part of that group and, um, you know, for better or for worse. And I think that masterminds, I have known a lot of people who have gotten a ton out of masterminds. I got some really great and valuable information out of the business mastermind that I did. But I think it really is a matter of doing a lot of research and having a very specific goal. All right. And then two more questions for <laughs> for this part of the, uh, the show. This is going to end up being a long show. Sorry, guys. So what is the best type of marketing? So I'll keep this one really short. And I feel like I've talked about this a fair amount recently. I think that marketing can, you know, there's a million different ways to market your business. I could go real deep on this and I will. I mean, there's always uh, another marketing topic to cover in the podcast. But if I had to distill what's the best kind of marketing down to one word, it would be consistency. Um, you know, I created the consistency club because that is what I believe your marketing has to be. No matter what you're doing in terms of the actual marketing strategy, you have to show up consistently. You have to build trust. Marketing is all about building trust with the people who find you. Some of it is instant trust, you know, and they maybe trust you because they like your photos or they like what you had to say in that one caption on Instagram. But then showing up consistently and sort of doubling down on that and tripling down on that and showing them that you are not just kind of a one trick pony is really the key to good marketing. And then finally, <laughs> I was asked what the best investment was that I made in my business in 2022. So last year, and this one was I mean, it's an easy answer in my education business, and that would be the people that I have invested in in this last year. I grew my team pretty significantly in 2022, and that has made a world of difference in what I am able to accomplish here in this space. But as far as my photography business, I am going to say that in 2022, the best money I spent on my business was switching to Dubsado for my CRM and specifically hiring Coley James to help set that up. I knew I needed to switch my CRM. I was 
Very excited to switch to Dubsado, but the idea of doing all the tech setup myself from scratch really felt overwhelming. And the money that I spent with Coley, who, if you aren't familiar, I'll link her in the show notes, was invaluable. She um, she got me up and rolling the first couple of weeks of January in 2022, and I have not looked back for one second. But that does kind of bridge my photography business and my education business. And guys, I was super surprised with the number of questions that I got about the education business and like how I got into education and this can't be that hard. So these questions were all over the place and I'm just going to kind of run through the story because I think that that kind of answers most of them. Basically, many of you have heard the story about when I broke my ankle back in 2018 or I didn't break my ankle. I had ankle surgery. And after I woke up from the surgery, found out that I was not allowed to walk. You know, I was on crutches for four months. So I didn't have any income because I couldn't work as a photographer. I was a single mom. It was like a big, big problem in my life. (laughs) And so from that period of freaking out, panic, I had two major kind of awakenings. Number one, was my membership concept. So I decided that I was going to pitch a membership to my family clients and get them on a program where they were working with me once a year and paying via auto credit card draft month after month. That turned out to be a game changer in my photography business because all of a sudden I had money that I could rely on every month, even if, for instance, I had surgery or, as did turn out the next year, a pandemic broke out and I couldn't work for a couple more months and and that money was coming in no problem. So that was a that was a pretty amazing thing. But the other realization that I had while I was recovering from that surgery was that I am now at the time of this recording I'm 43. I have been doing photography for 13 years. I am, you know, perfectly fit and fine and happy to continue doing the work that I'm doing as a photographer for the foreseeable future, but I can imagine a time when I'm not going to be able to keep up with running around after a toddler and getting like the photos that I love, which are like, you know, I'm laying on my side and like shooting up at this little two-year-old who's running around or whatever. It's a pretty physically demanding job. And it is a job where you are showing up and, you know, if, if you can't show up and do the work, then you don't make the money. I also think that our industry can be pretty difficult to keep your foot in the door if you are not hustling, you know, over time. I mean, I feel like the membership really stabilized for that for me. I've been in business for a long time, so my SEO is really good. But um, but I do think that there comes a time when it starts to be harder and harder to kind of socially connect with your clients. You know, if my clients are parents of young children, when I'm 55, I'm going to be the old lady in the room. Um, and that's nothing against 55-year-olds. It's not to say that you can't do it. I just anticipate that it might get harder and it may be something that I don't necessarily want to do as much. So I'm sitting there, you know, <laughs> foot elevated, thinking about all these things and starting to kind of sketch out for myself, like, what is my strategy going forward? Because I think in our businesses, we can be very focused on what's immediately in front of us and what the next problem is, but we always want to keep an eye further down the road to steer us in a direction that's going to keep us going in the right direction. So anyway, I started to think about what I might want to do in the future, and uh, I started 
listening to, I educate, I had been running a conference for a couple of years at that point. I had done my first talk at that conference and, and was pretty pleased with like how that went. And I thought it was fun and people seemed to really enjoy what I had to say. And I was like, I think that I could transition into the education space and photography, but I knew from the get-go that the thing that I would want to teach about would be business. So I started listening to podcasts about running an education business, about how to teach other people what you know. And basically for a year, I was just consuming. I was doing that sort of passive work of like educating myself on what's out there, who's out there, who the different people who teach this stuff are, and getting to know what I liked and what I didn't like. And I didn't really have an agenda. I was just kind of there. Then I got the call from PickTime, and one of you specifically had asked about how that partnership came about. I got a call from PickTime, and it wasn't a call, pardon me. I was at a conference, and Nareet from PickTime was at this conference, and we were chatting. And she was like, right, your sales averages are crazy high. What are you doing? And this was, you know, three years, two years into the simple sales system. And my online gallery sales were a lot higher than most other family photographers. So I explained that process to her, literally standing around at this conference. It was just a kind of a casual conversation. And then she and her husband followed up with me a few weeks later, I guess, to say, we've been talking about this and we would like to talk to you more about this potential for partnering because we think that this is something that could help other photographers. And that was really when the gears kind of clicked into place for me. And I thought, you're right, this is something that could help other people. Like I had literally never thought of it as something that I could teach because it was just kind of what I was doing. But the more I thought about it, the more I was like, this is something that could help people. I've been looking for you know, a potential way to educate, you know, get into the education space. This is is the right opportunity at the right time. So the first thing that I did was I worked with PickTime and we built this app and that took several months. And all the while I was starting to focus my learning about education, like about teaching, educating other people on the idea of teaching this one particular system. And so PickTime launched the app in October of 2019, and I was ready to launch the course that taught the simple sales system in more depth in January of 2020. So that was when I would say my education business was born. I was kind of ramping up the fall prior to that. And then, as I mentioned, I started the podcast in February and it has just kind of gone from there. So so that was how and why I got into education. My hope, my plan is to continue with both my photography business and my education business, at least through the time that my son Judah graduates from high school. But it definitely is appealing to me to have the flexibility to not have to be home, you know, in order to work here because I have to go see my photography clients. I think that it would be really nice to be flexible enough to be in different locations, perhaps do a bit more traveling, et cetera, once he's out of the house. So that's kind of where I am now, where I see that going. I love photography. My photography business is so streamlined and automated at this point that there's really no reason that I should give it up because I love my clients and I love hanging out with them and I love seeing them. I'm just super choosy about who I work with at this point. Um, I don't take any kind of work that I don't want to take. And it's a wonderful, wonderful balance. I would say that, you know, 80% of my time 
is spent on the education side of the business in many ways, just because I'm still learning on this side of the business. And of course, I'll always be learning as a photographer, but that is a, um, it's just, it's kind of a stabler business for me right now. And then just a couple of like more specific questions on there. People were asking, or a couple of people asked what I outsource what's in-house versus hired out. So I guess those are the same questions. So I, in This Can't Be That Hard, I do all of my content creation. So I plan all of my podcast episodes, both, you know, the the, uh, solo shows and the interviews. I write all the emails that you read. I create anything that's, I obviously create all of the content that goes into my courses and my workshops and challenges and things like that. I am trying to get to a place where almost everything else is outsourced, but that has been a process. I have a woman who is my sort of director of operations, also known as an online business manager in this space. She is responsible for hiring when we are doing any kind of hiring. She is responsible for communicating with the team. She does a lot of work in ClickUp, which is our the software that we use to kind of project manage the business. She does all kinds of communication to make sure that like this person knows what they're supposed to be doing on this project. She's like our project manager and it is amazing. <laughs> and then many of you are familiar with Dana who came on with me two years ago as a social media manager and has worked her way up to marketing director. She does social media planning and implementation, but she's also really working very close with me these days about, you know, how are we getting the word out about the podcast? Um, And she does a lot of great work in that realm. And of course, she uh, is half of the consistency club. And then uh, I have a virtual assistant named Lindsay, who is great and does all of my emailing and all that sort of thing. I have a podcast editor. I have two community managers in the Facebook group. And I have a guy who does all of the ads that I run. So if you've ever seen a Facebook or Instagram ad from me, that is thanks to Jeremy. So there's a lot outsourced and the overhead in this business <laughs> is a lot higher than it is in my photography business. I had somebody ask if I felt like the education business was harder, easier, or you know, impossible to compare when it comes to this versus the photography business. She asked, does it fill a different bucket for you or just add a more consistent revenue stream? It is very different. The online business space, I think when, you know, as photographers, when someone asks us like, oh, why do you charge so much? And we get, you know, flustered or frustrated um, and we think like they have no idea what goes into this. It's the same on an education business. If you wanna be serious about getting into education, and you're gonna create a great product, that's great, but like it doesn't sell itself. You have to do a lot of work to stay out in front of people. Um, There's a ton of writing and content creation and all of those things can be outsourced, but of course outsourcing comes at a pretty high cost. So it's different. I really enjoy it. It does kind of fill a different bucket for me. It is a creative outlet in a different realm. The novelty has not even started to wear off for me. So it is, it's a good, I think if you're interested in going into it, that is wonderful. It can be great. It is very scalable, which is lovely, but, but it's also highly competitive, not unlike photography. So there's lots of similarities and differences. And then finally, I had been asked if the education business was a separate entity from my portrait photography business, or do I do them under the same name? Currently, they are still under the umbrella of my photography business. I chose that because in the beginning, I had no idea if my education business was ever going to make any money. 
Now that it's more established, my accountant and I are talking about separating them out just to keep things clean. But I do keep completely separate records. So it's separate bank accounts, um, separate Stripe accounts, like everything. I have different credit cards so that when I'm accounting, it's very easy to see. And that brings us to the final chapter. And anyone who is still sticking with me, I hope that this feels like a dessert because it is certainly fluff. that I don't normally include in my podcast episodes. The A number one question that I got on the personal front was about my upcoming wedding. I am getting married in May and I am taking some time off of both businesses to, to do so. It's not a big wedding. It's not a fancy wedding. We are getting married out in the Outer Banks of North Carolina and we're just having like a 50 person weekend long celebration. Uh, and of those 50 or 55 people, almost a third of them are teenagers. So just because that's my kid's age and then, you know, lots of my friends have kids the same age, but it will be very hopefully wonderful and sweet and, uh, and not too much fuss. I am um, not interested in doing the whole fancy wedding thing. I actually, it was funny. I got my dress last summer. I had gone to anthropology to try on jeans and I saw a, (laughs) Uh, a dress hanging on the rack that looked like it could be a suitable wedding dress. And so I tried it on and I was by myself and I took a photo, like a selfie in the mirror and sent it to my best friend. And she was like, OMFG, why are you shopping for wedding dresses without me? And I was like, sorry, I didn't, I didn't mean to, but that's how I bought my wedding dress. The price was right. And it was, uh, it's cute. So you'll see pictures once they're there. Um, But yeah, other than that, we're just doing like, I don't think we're going to do flowers. My friend who's an amazing dancer and fitness instructor is going to do all the like playlist DJ music stuff. My two best friend's daughters who are 16 and 17 have agreed to do my makeup. I'm sure I'll do my own hair because then my hair does what it does. Obviously, the hardest part was choosing a photographer. Um, I am a photographer. My fiance is a photographer. We both have tons of very talented photographer friends. We went kind of around and around about this and then ultimately made a decision that I'm super excited about, but that was kind of like out of left field and everybody's like, what? Which is that I hired a woman who I met through Pick Time and Simple Sales, and her name is Elka Vandenenda. She lives in Belgium. She is an amazing wedding photographer. If you don't know who she is, I'll link her in the show notes as well. But she is going to fly in and do the photos. So that was kind of our big splurge. That's our uh, wedding gift to each other. I think it's going to be really, really fun to finally get to meet her in real life. And uh, and I know that we're going to have amazing photos to share. So, yeah. So that's the story of the wedding. And I... Uh, I'm definitely, I have my work cut out for me between now and then just to get the final pieces in place. And then the very last, very silliest uh, question that came in of all (laughs) was uh, from someone who asked, I would love to know where you picked up that adorable rust-colored jumper on the sign-up page for the workshop. She was talking about the Invisible to Irresistible workshop that we hosted back in January. And I love that jumpsuit. So I was like, I'm going to answer that question. So I got that online from Marine Layer, which is a California-based clothing company, back in 2020. So I don't know that they still have it, but thank you so much for the compliment. I have always hated the way that I look in anything jumper, romper related, but it's like one of those things where you see other people and you're like, it looks so good on you. Why does it look so bad on me? So I took kind of a leap. I had seen that one in a catalog and I was like, oh, 
I'm, I'll just try this one. And, uh, and I love it. And I'm glad you do too. I appreciate that. Plus the color is pretty on brand. So guys, this has been a really long episode. I appreciate you sticking with me to celebrate number 200. I hope that there was some value in here for you in one area or another, um, or that you just enjoyed hearing me blather on. I really do appreciate you coming back here week after week. Quarter of a million downloads feels like an enormous hug honestly. And so I just want to throw that right back at you and give you that hug right back. Thank you so much. I will be back here same time next week. Well, that's it for this week's episode of This Can't Be That Hard. I'll be back same time, same place next week. In the meantime, you can find more information about this episode along with all the relevant links, notes, and downloads at thiscan'tbethathard.com slash learn. If you like the podcast, be sure to hit the subscribe button. Even better, share the love by leaving a review in iTunes. And as always, thanks so much for joining me. I hope you have a fantastic week.